So take your copy of God's Word and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, we're in a series. If this is your first time, we're honored that you would be here with us. And the chair back in front of you is a card you can fill out or you can scan the QR code. And we would love to help you in your faith journey. Whatever you are, we want to be right there with you. So today we're in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse number 15. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to read from it or you can view along on the screen. Let's stand as we read God's Word. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll begin in verse 15. Paul tells us about Jesus, and here's what he says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, say this word with me, preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, say these two words with me, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, last words, by the blood of his cross. You may be seated. Who is Jesus? This is probably the most frequently asked question of all time. And I would assume since you came to church this morning, you have generally positive thoughts about Jesus. Uh, no person in the history of the planet has had more of an impact or, or influence in everything like Jesus, no one else. Now, people have different views of Jesus. People have different thoughts about who Jesus is. Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet, but not divine. Jews believe that Jesus may have been a good teacher, but he definitely was not God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is the archangel Michael, and skeptics, agnostics, and atheists even doubt that Jesus existed at all. But one thing about Jesus is this. You can't be neutral about him. You can't have no opinion about him. You, you can't uh, push it off or pass it down. You've got to make your own decision on who Jesus is. Everyone in this room and everyone watching online, you have to make a decision, who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this. He says, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can, sh you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. Either Jesus in your life is a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord of all. It's one of the three. He's either a liar and the most delusional cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs person to ever live, or he is the Lord of all. You can't be neutral. And here's what you're going to learn today. What you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. 
The most important thing about you is not what you do for a living, not how much money you make, not, not anything about your family, not anything about your accomplishments. The most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus. And that's what the Apostle Paul is teaching here to this uh, new church, this new church start. Uh, a church in a town called Colossae. Paul is writing in prison. He is in prison because he has preached Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And because of that, that got him into prison. And he is writing to this young church that was growing in faith and love based on the hope that they had laid up for them in heaven. And Paul is writing to them. And everything that Paul knows about them, he heard through a guy named Epaphras who is one of Paul's disciples. And this is all secondhand what Paul knows about them, but Paul has heard that this church was under incredible pressure. The pressure was from those who were from the outside of the church, but also those who had joined the church. And they were trying to pressure this new church group to abandon Jesus or to add to Jesus, to drift away from Jesus. These false teachers were not denying the importance of Jesus, they weren't saying that Jesus wasn't someone you should listen to. They weren't saying that he wasn't someone who was special, but here's what they were doing. Instead of denying the importance of Jesus, they, they didn't deny him, but what they wanted to do is they wanted to dethrone Jesus. They didn't deny his importance, but they wanted to dethrone his supremacy. And so Paul here is preaching and teaching in this book the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. That if Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all that you need. And so here in verses 15 through 20, this was an early church hymn. Most scholars believe this was a hymn, either written by Paul in this moment and would be sang by the early church or was a well-known hymn to the early church and Paul uses it as a way to inspire them and in their understanding of who Jesus is. And even though these verses may or may not be derived from worship, in reading them and understanding them, they should always result in worship. And it is the worship of Christ that overflows into a witness for Christ. And so here's what we're gonna learn today. Paul is gonna teach us the most essential truths about the person and the preeminence of Jesus so that we would put him before all things in our lives. So that when you leave here today, I don't want you to say what great music, worship we had. I don't want you to leave here saying what great preacher, preaching that we have. But I want you leaving here saying what a mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what I want you to leave with today. So let's just unpack who he, who he is. Number one, the person of Jesus. He's the Lord of creation. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the first thing we learn here is that God is invisible. God is immaterial. John 4 tells us that he is spiritual. So the question is, is that how can the invisible God be visible? How can the unknowable God be knowable? The answer is Jesus. Jesus makes the unseen God seen. He makes the intangible God touchable. He makes the unknowable God knowable. Jesus said in John 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus is the living manifestation of God in a language that you and I can understand. Paul uses a specific word here saying that he is the image of, of the invisible God. Now, we as creation, uh, as created humans, we are made in the image of God, but here Jesus is the image of God. Do you see the difference? We were made in his image. Jesus is the image. 
And this word image here is the Greek word icon. And if you, those of you who use PCs or remember that phrase icons, you have these things on your, on your screen. Those of you who have apps, it's kind of like an app. You have these little apps which are icons. Uh, which points you to something else. This, in the Greco-Roman world, the icon was a, a portrait on a coin, uh, a signature, could even be a mirror. And so like a mirror reflects your image, so here Jesus reflects God to us. Now, when I look into the mirror, uh, I see my exact image accurately. And I have seen that over the years that some of my hair has gone on to be with the Lord. And I see that things change, and that's the problem with a mirror. It reflects accurately. Jesus here reflects God to us accurately. Everything that we can know and must know about God is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this is not speculation, this is special revelation. Hebrews chapter one tells us that in the last days, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse three that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. All that God is, Jesus is. If Jesus were not fully God, he could not be the exact representation of God. And so Jesus reveals the Father to us. All that Jesus is, the Father is. All the Father is, Jesus is. And Jesus, being the image of God, underscores his deity and his authority. And so how has God interacted with us is that now Jesus has come to us. Let me illustrate this. When you guys come to church, often you'll come in here and you'll pick your seats, okay? Some of you sit in the far back, some of you sit up in the front, some of you different places, and sometimes you just come so late you're just standing around or figuring it out, okay? I get that, I get that, and we are packed, and we understand that, and we thank God for that, or we're, we're God's blessing us here. And so when you come in here, I'm standing here on the stage, and most of the time, even in worship, like even some of you right now, because I'm gonna look at the camera, you're not looking me up on the stage, you're looking at the camera. And I get that, because we have been trained to watch screens. And so I'm standing right here in front of you, but you're looking up to the screen. And so here's, here's what happens. I have people that I'll meet in, in, around town, or I'll meet after church, and they'll come up to me, and the first thing that they say to me is, wow, you are taller in real life. And I'm like, man, I wish they would say, man, you're better looking in real life or something like that. But they don't say that. They say, man, you're taller in real life. And the reason why is because um, you're looking at the, the screen and the screen is just a projection of the image. It doesn't make the image. It just takes the image that comes from the camera, goes through a computer, and projects it. So what you're seeing on the screen is a projection of me. That's what God was like in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was not seen completely by man. And so Moses couldn't behold God in his fullness. Isaiah couldn't behold God in his fullness. All we got in the Old Testament were glimpses, shadows, and projections of God. But in the New Testament, God says, I want to be seen in person. I'm not going to use a mere man. I'm going to show up as a man so that when you see him, you are seeing me. That's what it means here. That Jesus is, is the image of the invisible God. He's not made in the image, but he is the image. Then he continues. The firstborn of all creation. Now, some people will say that this is proof that Jesus was created. 
The Jehovah's Witness will use this verse to say that Jesus is the first thing that God created. But if Jesus is the first thing God created, then I think that's gonna contradict everything Paul's gonna teach in this text. So the word firstborn does not mean born first in this context. It can mean the birth order, but it can also mean first in position. Paul here is teaching us <clears throat> that Jesus is first in rank and position over all the creation. Why? Verse 16, for by him all things were created. The only uncreated thing in the universe is God. God created everything, and Jesus is God, and so Jesus here, Paul tells us, created everything, which means that Jesus himself was uncreated. And so Jesus is the creator of all beings, not a created being. Creation didn't come from nothing or no one, it came from Jesus. Jesus is the cause of creation. Now, when you say that, sometimes people will say, well, well, then who created God? Have you ever heard that? If God created everything, well, who created God? And, and the issue is that that's not a great question based on definitions. See, our definition of God is that he is the uncreated creator of the universe. And so to ask who created God is like asking what sound does silence make? See, the definition of silence is what keeps you from asking the question, what sound does silence make? To say, to ask the question, who created God, is to not understand the definition of God being an uncreated creator. Now, let me just blow some of your minds here. Atheists, agnostics, secular humanists believe in an uncreated creator. They call it Big Bang. And they believe that there's an uncreated creator that's an impersonal force. That's an issue. You go and read Dawkins, you read Hawkins, you read all of the secular humanists, and their issue is always that first cause. They do not have an answer. So their answer is an uncreated creator created everything or brought forth everything. And so here's the thing. We believe in an uncreated creator as well, except he's not impersonal. He's in the person of Jesus Christ, and he's very personal. So again, this word firstborn, not born first, but first in rank. This word also in the Greek is where we get our word prototype from. And so Jesus is the pattern of creation. He's the template on which all things were created and the one to whom they were created for. And though he tells us, what did Jesus create? And he created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So Jesus created what you see and what you don't see. Jesus created the microscopic, but also the cosmic. Jesus created the physical and the spiritual, the biological and the geographical, the human and the angelic, because he's the source of creation. Continue, all things are created through him and for him. If you check the label on everything that is created, the label will all read the same way, made by Jesus. Robert Gramacki writes, Jesus alone should be praised. When we view the minute complexities of life in a microscope or the vastness of the universe in a telescope, he alone should be glorified for creation, not some impersonal matter, mother nature, and not some atheistic theory of evolution. Jesus alone should be praised. 
And here's what you gotta understand. Since Jesus is our creator, he created the world and everything in it and the universe, then this way it tells all of you today and me that this world and universe is not about me. And for some of you, that should be a huge relief to know that this world does not revolve around you, to know that this world does not hang on your every thought or every word. It hangs on his every thought and on his every word because what the Bible teaches us is this, is that Jesus is for you, but Jesus is not about you. Everything that Jesus does is about Jesus. When you read the Bible, it's for Jesus, and it's about Jesus. Jesus loves us, saves us, protects us because he's for us, but ultimately it's because he's about him because the goal of creation is Jesus. See, he created it all. It belongs to him. And all of his creation will one day give an account to him. The history of the world is going to a throne where every creature will one day stand before that throne and give an account to their creator. So when you die, you're not gonna stand in front of a mirror and give an account. You're gonna stand before a holy Jesus and you will bow before him. Because he's the source of creation. But not only that, he is the sustainer of creation. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the glue of the galaxy. He is holding the universe together. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's not some absentee landlord. He's not some deadbeat dad who walked out on us, but he is the one who is holding everything together in his metaphoric hands. And just because something is out of your hands doesn't mean it's not held together by his hands. See, your life is in his hands. Your family is in his hands. Your children are in his hands. Your job, your health, your, your career, the United States of America are in his hands. Your future is in his hands. And that's why you and I must give up any illusion that anything is in our hands. Your salvation is in his hands. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them from my hands. There's not one thing that happens that Jesus doesn't notice in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. He says, there are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Fear not, you are more value than the many sparrows. Jesus is saying that the cheapest, most insignificant thing is noticed by him. I don't know how many of you have ever flown on Alaskan Airlines. <laughs> it's probably the safest time to ever fly on them. Because just the other day, as they were taking off, the door ripped off. Now, that's not supposed to happen. No, no, we have, we have a picture here you can kind of see. Jim, no, no, not that one, the other one. Got to look excited. There we go. That's not supposed to be like that. Could you imagine sitting there? You would be glad that your seatbelt is on at that moment, right? 
Like, just in case you ever wonder, okay? So imagine you're taking off, door opens, and stuff starts flying out. And so one thing that fell out, which you saw, is something that's gone viral is a cell phone. So somebody's iPhone that was plugged in was sucked out when the door was opened, and it was found in the bushes, fully intact, no cracked screens, fully working, after going 16,000 feet down. And that is the real phone. It's proven, it was on airplane mode, and on the phone has a baggage receipt of that particular flight that day. Scientists estimate that the force velocity of that phone falling was about between 50 and 100 miles an hour. So that's pretty fast, 16,000 feet. The question that I have when I thought about this entire thing is this, what kind of cell phone case did this person have? <laughs> it's the first thing that went through my head. Because <laughs> whatever they got, I want. And I'll tell you what it is. It is a Cairo <laughs> armor case. You can get it on Amazon for 25 bucks. So a $25 piece of plastic made God only knows where held that phone together. And as impressive as that is, Jesus is far more impressive. Because he's holding everything together. And that's why, my friends, we worship the God who came to us. We don't worship a reflection of ourselves. We don't worship the Jesus of our own imaginations. One of the great failures of believers is to underestimate Jesus. Jesus is far greater, higher, and more awesome than you and I can imagine. He's not the reflection of the current mood of the culture. He's not a projection of your own desires. He is the Lord and God. He is the Father's Son, the Savior of the world, the substitute for our sins, more loving, holy, and wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. That's why we worship him. Amen. So he's the Lord of creation. But secondly, I want you to see not just the person of Jesus, that he's the Lord of creation, but I want you to see the preeminence of Jesus, he's the Lord of the church. Paul gives three titles to Jesus. Verses 18 through 20 tells us these titles. The first title is in verse 18, where Paul says that he is the head of the body, the church. In other words, Paul wants to make sure that this Colossian church understands who the boss is. The boss is not Paul. The boss is not Epaphras. The boss is Jesus Christ. Now, when the Bible talks about the church, it refers to it more in a description than it does a definition. The church in the New Testament is described as a building of living stones built upon each other with Jesus as the foundation. The church is described as a bride. The church is described as a family with brothers and sisters and a few crazy uncles. But one of the primary metaphors of the church in the New Testament is the metaphor of a body. And often when the, the New Testament writers talk about the church being the body, it, it often talks about the mutual dependence that each member of the body has with each other. 
But when Paul here is using this analogy, he's not talking about the mutual dependence that we have on each other. He's talking about the total dependence we have on Jesus. Because Jesus is the head. Your head is the control center of your body. What your head says, your body does unless there's a mutiny. If you don't have a head, you're dead. If you got two heads, you're a monster. And Jesus is the one and only head of this church. Not a pastor, not a pope, not a deacon, not an elder, only Jesus. And tremendous problems happen when humans make humans the head of a church. That's where war begins. War often happens when we argue over who's in charge. The issue is that's already been settled. Jesus is in charge. My role as pastor and others in church leadership, we are not the head. We are under the head. And that's why you need to pray for me is I pray and seek after, and as we pray and seek after, what does Jesus want, not what do I want? Unfortunately, consumerism has supplanted Christ in the church. Consumerism says that the customer's always right. And so in a consumeristic church, whatever makes the most people happy often wins at the expense of the truth. But in a Jesus-centered church, Jesus is always right, and we always do what Jesus says. He's the head of the body. Secondly, he's the beginning. He's first. The idea here is he's first principle. Third title is that he's the firstborn of the dead. Now, this is the second use of that word firstborn. And again, it's not first in birth order or first in chronology. It's first in rank. Now, here's where we actually think a little bit more about that Greek word prototype. That Jesus is a prototype. He is a pattern of the resurrected life. The idea of firstborn from the dead is not the dead, but that he is alive, that he is risen from the dead. And so think about the logic of Paul. He is the beginning. Jesus is first. He is the firstborn from the dead. He went first. The only reason that Jesus is the firstborn of the, from the dead is because he came to us first, he pursued us first, he died for us first, and he's the first to rise from the dead. Now, you say, well, pastor, are, are you sure that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead? Think about this. This is going to blow you away. Do you understand that Jesus is the first person to be resurrected fully and forever? Now, yes, Jesus raised three people from the dead. One of the most, most notable is a guy named Lazarus. But Lazarus wasn't so much resurrected as he was resuscitated. Because think about Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. Jesus resurrected him. He lived for a little while, and guess what happened? He died again. Now think about it. He knew what was coming. He died, was resurrected to die again. Poor Lazarus. But Jesus is different. Because Jesus died, he rose from the dead to never die again. And that's why he serves as a prototype. That's how, why he serves as a pattern. Is it just like Jesus died to, and rose to never die again, so those who are in him, you will die, you will be resurrected to never die again. 
And so Paul is saying he's the head of the church, he's the first principle, and he's the firstborn from the dead, therefore he should be in first place in everything in our lives. That Jesus is not just one of your many priorities. Jesus is not someone who just wants a place in your life. Jesus is not someone who just wants prominence in your life. Jesus wants preeminence over your life. He wants to be number one, not two, not three, not four, number one. You know, I've been married for 15 years. I've learned a lot in 15 years. Listen, women and men, when you're looking for spouses, don't look for finished statues, look for blocks of marble. So my wife married a block of marble and she's been chipping away ever since and I'm becoming the man, I'm just kidding. I've been married 15 years. I want you to imagine I came to my wife and I said, April, of all the women I love, you are one of them. (laughs) You think she'd be happy with that? (laughs) Me either. But you know what we often say to God, what we often say to Jesus? is we say, Jesus, of all the gods in my life, you're one of them. Of all the priorities in my life, Jesus, you're one of them. Jesus should be number one in your life. The reality is, is that he often isn't. The reality is, is that other things take position of first in our lives. Be our families, be our job, could be a hobby could be sports, could be pleasure, could even be ourselves. And I'll tell you, whatever you put in the position of one, if it's not Jesus, it's never gonna be enough. Because I'll tell you, whatever, whatever you put as one in your life didn't create you. Whatever you put as the position of one in your life, that one doesn't, other than Jesus, doesn't sustain you. Whatever you put in the position of number one in your life is not the one who saved you, died for you, pursued you, loved you, protects you, takes care of you. It promises that it will, but it never delivers. Paul goes a little bit deeper. Why should we make Jesus first in our lives? And, and it's, not just, it's not just about who he is, the Lord of creation, the Lord of the church, but it's also about what he's done. He's not number one just because of who he is. That alone should be enough. If he never did anything, he still should be number one. But it's not just that. It's what he's done for us. Verse 19, the incarnation. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That Jesus came to us. When we couldn't come to him, he came to us. And Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. God entered into history. The creator of creation entered into his creation and was happy to be here. I mean, the Bible says that it pleased God. Jesus wasn't like grumbling, I guess I gotta go. Man, I mean, I don't really wanna be born. I really wanna live in poverty. I don't really wanna have people hate me and I really don't wanna die on a cross, but I guess I'll do it anyway. No, he was pleased to be here. And Jesus wasn't just a good man, he's the God man. 
He wasn't just the best among us. He's in a category all by himself. Now, some people say, well, pastor, you know what? Jesus never said he was God. Well, then why do you think they tried to kill him and why do you think they did? Because he claimed to be God. Now, some people say, well, you know, pastor, all, you know, I just want you to know I've, I, I did one year of religion in, in community college and now I'm a complete expert on religion. <laughs> and they'll say, well, pastor, you know, all religions, don't they all teach the same thing? Not when it comes to Jesus, they don't. Islam says that Jesus was a prophet, not God. Islam says that, that Jesus is not a greater prophet than Muhammad. Judaism says that Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. Buddhism says that Jesus was an enlightened man, but not better than the Buddha. The Bible says that there is none but Jesus. He is God in the flesh who came to us. He should be number one because he came to us. But he didn't just come to us, but he saved us. Verse 20. Through him, Jesus came to us. It pleased God that in Jesus, the fullness of God would dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. The word reconciliation is a relationship word. Have any of you ever had a bad relationship with someone? Is it always their fault? I always talk to the guy, yeah, man, I'm, you know, it's always their fault. Listen, maybe yours. Just throwing it out there. Well, I'll tell you, when it comes to our relationship with God, it's never God's fault. It's always ours. God created us for relationship with him. We rejected him. We'd rather go our way than his way. We'd rather follow what we want to do rather than follow what he wants us to do. And that doesn't just cause a strain. It shatters the relationship with God. See, you and I were born hostile to God. We were born enemies of God. We declared war against God through our sin. So Jesus came to reconcile so if you have a reconciliation, there's a mediation, and how do you mediate that? Well, the only way to truly and accurately and properly mediate the issue between me and God was death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so for you to be right with God, someone has to die. <laughs> you or God. So what did God do? He died for you, and he died instead of you. And when he died for you, he fulfilled what was needed so you could have peace with God. But what I love about this hymn is the use of the word all, A-L-L. -L. All creation, all things, all things, all things, all things, in everything, all the, all things. What is Paul saying is this, what he's saying is this, is that Jesus is over all, before all, because he did it all. See, what Jesus did on the cross is more than enough. You don't have to add to it, and you can't subtract from it, because what Paul is talking about here is the total sufficiency of the work of Christ. Why that's important is this. Some of you were raised up in religious traditions that say this, Jesus died for you, now you gotta finish it out. Jesus started the sucker, now you gotta hold on. And some of you are living your lives 
trying to earn and prove yourself before a holy God, not understanding that peace has already been declared at the cross. Have you ever heard of the Battle of Blue Licks? It was fought in Kentucky. On August the 19th, 18, 1782, it's actually known as the last battle of the American Revolutionary War. What, what makes it kind of unique and what makes it kind of ironic was that it was fought 10 months after the British surrendered at Yorktown. Daniel Boone and his militiamen, the Kentucky Foo Fighters, <laughs> fought against the British loyalists, and 72 men died, and they died for nothing. Because war had ended. Peace had been declared. And they were fighting a battle that was already won. Some of you are doing the same thing. You are trying to fight for God's peace. You are trying to earn God's forgiveness. You are fighting a battle that Jesus had already won at the cross. And he went on the field of battle, stood toe to toe against Satan, hell, death, and the grave, and he won the victory. So instead of fighting God for peace, why don't you rest in Jesus' peace? See, Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is the only one we should worship. Joby Martin said this. He says, Jesus is first. Jesus went first. And Jesus must be first in our lives. So last night, I went to bed at 10 o'clock, and I went to sleep about 3.30. And then I woke up at 5.30. Zippity-doo-dar, zippity-day. <laughs> Tossing, turning, couldn't sleep. So normally what I do when I can't sleep is I start, I start praying and I start repenting. That's what mom said, Repent. So I repent about all the sins I can think of, and then I start thinking about other people's sins. <laughs> <laughs> there was a moment I just, I was tossing turn, I felt sorry for April, and so I just got up, and I went in the living room, and I just got in, the, in, in our couch there, and I just, just, just was praying, and I was so tired, and it was about two o'clock in the morning, and I just, put my hands up here in my head and my head just went into my hands and I started praying. And then all of a sudden, I started thinking. This is 2 a.m. thinking. I could, my entire life is in my hands. Like my brain's here and if I wanted to, I could do some damage, right? 
caused some issues. Like it's right, it's right here. And I started to think as, you know, looking at 40 and man, all of my memories, all the stuff, everything that I am holding in my hands. I'm holding my life in my hands. Again, 2 a.m. thinking, all right. <laughs> then I thought, no, no. My life is in Jesus' hands. And I began to think about my head. And I thought, Jesus gave his head so that I would never lose mine. Wow, what a savior. Jesus lost his life so that I can find it. He alone is worthy of it all. He alone. Your life is not in your hands. Your life is in his hands. And his hands are nail scarred. Alas, it did my Savior bleed. And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Jesus is supreme, and he's all that you need. Father, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would confirm in our hearts that if you are all that we have, Jesus, you're all that we need that our life is in your hands and you alone are worthy of it all. Great are you, Lord. I praise you for that in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing a song. You can stand. You can stand right now and if you wanna come up and pray, we have our areas up here. If you just wanna bow down before Jesus and pray, you can. But I want you to sing this great song of worship. It says, great are you, Lord.